Hi everyone. Is that? Yeah, there we go. Awesome. If you don't know me, my name's Mike um, Lamy, and I've been coming here, f I think, for probably about five years or so now. Um, so if you're new, welcome. Um, before I start, I just want to say thanks to Nick for giving me the opportunity to preach today. I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't preached in a while, so it's good to be back. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Sometimes you just get up here and you say things and you're like, don't really know why I'm saying that. <laughs> but anyway, today we're going to be exploring Psalm 8 and I'm excited. So let's open up. Um, I'm reading from ESV. So, to the choir master according to the Giddeth, a praise of David. I've also got it up on there and that's quite small. I can't read that. Um, o our Lord... How majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let's just pray before I begin. Dear God, we thank you that your name is majestic in all the earth. Um, we thank you for this psalm. We pray that um, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would be illuminating this to our hearts and that, yeah, you'd be expounding on this truth and um, that it would begin to shape our lives and to transform us. Amen. So, um, if you've looked at the skies recently, and particularly the night sky, I think there's something about stars that really brings, brings clarity. You know, when you, it brings... Um, thoughts that you might not have during the day. Um, and I'm sorry, but some real cringe factor to start here. Um, and Ivy's going to hate this. And I actually normally hate this kind of thing too. <laughs> but I first realised that I really loved Ivy Blacker under the stars. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and we hadn't been dating for that long. But one night we sat and we ate cheese. And we talked at... <laughs> Always good. <laughs> and we talked at Cambrai. I think that's how you say it. But it's actually like this. It's now a dark sky reserve, um, which, you know, the night sky is sort of slowly disappearing with all the light pollution. And so it's actually been named this reserve. And, you know, there's all these restrictions in the area. But that's sort of beside the point. That remains one of the best nights of my life. And in a night of a moment of quiet... I remember having the thought that, you know, these stars have seen many 
loves like ours. And not only that, but they've overlooked everything um, that has passed since the beginning of time. And so you see that under the night sky, things are a lot clearer. You know, it's not just a good backdrop for a date, but actually um, the splendour and the majesty of the stars brings a heavenly perspective where, you know, just our earthly concerns and that kind of thing fades away. And when David looked up at the stars, and we see his reflection captured here in this psalm, um, it seems that he was struck with a similar clarity. David's divinely inspired, inspired reflections on the night sky reveal the way in which God makes his name majestic in all the earth. And so I kind of was thinking of this psalm as I was writing it as like the architectural kind of plans for like a big grand cathedral. It clarifies how God reveals his majesty. But as we'll see, it's a pretty strange cathedral. You know, cathedrals usually employ these big gravity-defying um, tricks and um, feats that create a big sense of awe. And so um, when David reflects on uh, God's majesty, we, sort of, we expect something similar, that he'll be talking about big, grand things. And of course, in this psalm, he does. Um, he is captivated in awe by God's majesty revealed in, in his creation. How great must the being be who produced all of that out of nothing, right? Who regulates the courses of the planets and the stars and directs them and supports them. And he does all of this, David says, just with his, th with his fingers. And that's a pretty amazing image, I think. It's as if the whole universe is just like this little model that stands on God's workbench. And that's the kind of response that we usually expect when we reflect on God's majesty. But there's something more that's actually going on in this psalm, which we might normally overlook. As David reflects on like, the big night sky and its grandeur, he's actually led to some other pretty interesting but unexpected conclusions. So, in verse 2, out of nowhere... David's mind has moved from the glory, right, that sits above the heavens, to babies. And I think that's pretty strange. And when I was first reading this psalm, I was like, what is sort of going on here? Why is he suddenly talking about babies? And I can tell you, when I was sitting under the stars with Ivy, I was definitely not thinking about babies. <laughs> um, and you'd hope so after only a few dates. <laughs> um, but that's not all. In verses 3 to 4, um, you see that David moves from the splendor, right, of the moon and the stars to contemplating God's mindfulness of men. And the Hebrew word here um, carries the connotation. The Hebrew word, I think, is pronounced Enosh, and it carries a connotation of, like, frailty rather than strength and power. So the idea is more like frail, frail men. Um, 
So, what is with all this talk of babies and frail people? It doesn't really seem to fit, at least to me. Well, I think David is contrasting weak things and strong things. Um, And he does this to show that although the infinite majesty of God is evident when we contemplate the stars, God actually communicates his glory in a particularly powerful way um, in the great favour which he shows to weak people and to weak things. So tonight, I want to explore three ways which I think um, we see in this psalm that witness to um, God's wonder in weakness. So firstly, that God cares for the weak. Then, that God exalts the weak. And then finally, that he himself becomes weak. So, let's start with he cares for the weak. So much like David, the great 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, if you've heard of him, you're probably getting like fire and brimstone connotations because he wrote the sermon uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he was actually a very like nuanced thinker. Um, and he believed right, that the wonders of nature expressed the majesty of the creator. But Edwards gets really specific about kind of some of the characteristics that, 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 that expresses of God. For him, nature in particular revealed the great care of the creator God. Um, and this was most evident to him um, as he carefully explained the Tarzan-like ability of this little spider from New England that swings between trees. And he wrote this, it's a fairly famous letter, which he actually um, submitted to the Royal Academy and he tried to get it published as a scientific um, paper. And they say he was only 12 when he submitted it, but I think it's sort of, he was more like 20 or something. Um, but, you know, these, these spiders, they were so fragile, right? They were these fragile little things. And yet, to him, God had equipped them with everything that they needed In fact, Edwards marvelled that these spiders even seemed to be having fun as they flew from twig to twig. Um, He wrote, We hence see the exuberant goodness of the Creator, who hath not only provided for all the necessities, but also for the pleasure and recreation of all sorts of creatures and even the insects that are most despicable. (laughs) In the spider's swinging, you see, Edwards saw God's deep care for even the littlest and the weakest of his creatures. And likewise, David's reflections on the night sky lead him to the extraordinary conclusion in verses 3 to 4 that God is mindful of humanity and that he cares for them. And I know it's posed as a question in the psalm, But I think it's really important to note that David is asking why God cares and is mindful and not if. So it's taken as given that he cares and that he's mindful. And he realises that no, no matter how sort of beautiful and majestic the skies look, 
It's actually weak human beings that are the prime object of God's care. And of course, this is really just a wonderful thing to to ponder and to consider, that the creator of heaven, whose glory is so surpassingly great, graciously cares for us as individuals. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, it's probably the case that that sounds pretty mundane. You're like, yeah, okay, I've heard that God cares over and over and over. Um, But I want us to see that this is so much more than just like a um, Sunday school answer. You know, if we've been raised as a Christian and in sort of, even just in our Western culture, I think most of us have been actually um, inoculated just to the sheer audacity of this kind of claim. You know, for ancient people, the claim that the divine, that God, would take a deep and personal interest in mere mortals like us was just extremely controversial. And in fact, a second century Roman philosopher who was called Celsus, he um, thought um, that this discredited the Christian faith. And he he said um, that what discredited the Christian faith was its excessive care, sorry, excessive valuation of the human soul and just the absurd idea that God takes an interest in man. But David actually takes the controversy, controversy, sorry, even further. Another translation of God's the idea of God being mindful is also the idea that he visits. And so Psalm 8 reveals David's confidence, right, that God doesn't just care about weak people. He's not just sort of thinking about them, but actually that he visits them and that he takes up a personal connection with them. And that's pretty amazing, I think. And Paul experience this kind of intimacy in his weakness. So much so that in um, 2 Corinthians 12, which I've put up on the screen, so have a read. I won't read it all out. Here he makes, Paul makes, this amazing contrast, right, between his highest and his lowest experience in his life. And so verses 1 to 7, um, they describe this big, amazing, heavenly vision that he was um, drawn up in, where he was drawn up to paradise, he puts it. And this was his best ever experience, right? But it's interesting that it isn't where he finds strength. He goes on to describe um, his worst experience. In verses 7 to 9, we see that he is tormented by this thorn that's given to him by a messenger of Satan. And it's in this week, this weak place, right? that he experiences God's presence most powerfully. And so in verses 9, God speaks to him and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on to say in response, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
And the, the idea behind the word rest here um, is to tabernacle. And so the tabernacle was this tent. Um, and before Solomon built his temple, it was where um, God dwelt with his people. It was a dwelling place of God's glory. But, I mean, nowadays, um, we don't find any tabernacle on earth. And so instead, Paul is saying, right, that the dwelling place of God is pitched every time one of his children brings their weakness to him and asks for his grace and his power and his strength um, in exchange. And so you see, just as God's glory dwelt in this tent um, in the wilderness under like rough animal skins, so God's majesty can dwell in the poor and frail tents that are our, our souls. So, how is God's name made majestic in all the earth? Well, firstly, because he compassionately cares for us weak people. He doesn't just spin this whole thing up um, and let it go like, like a watchmaker would. And he doesn't just sort of check in every now and again to see how things are going. Instead, he cares so much that he rolls up his sleeves and he actually gets involved. So, next, let's explore how he exalts the weak. I've wondered if you've ever experienced a visit, like someone visiting you in your life that changed your life. Well, for the city of Adelaide, this came in June 1964. It was when the Beatles touched down at Adelaide Airport and they were welcomed by more than 300,000 people, which is pretty impressive because it was like, I think it was over half of Adelaide's population at the time. Um, I'll just show you a picture. I, I'm not actually sure where that is, but the streets were just totally packed of people as they, as they rolled through. And this visit was like a pivotal moment for, for our, our little city of Adelaide. In the mid-60s, you know, Adelaide was a pretty quiet, kind of traditional city. But in June 1964, it became the focus of the world's attention. And actually, it, we gave the Beatles the biggest reception they ever saw um, when they were touring and stuff, which is pretty cool. And so for a while, our little town, you know, it was given this and conferred this big city legitimacy. It was exalted, right, above its usual standing on the international scene. And you see, God's visits are the same. When God is said to visit throughout Scripture, this implies, or usually implies, divine intervention that changes people's destiny. God's demonstration of his majesty, you see, doesn't just stop at the fact that he's mindful and caring. Um, it continues even further. He notices the weak with care, yes, and he sets out to visit them, yes, but he also changes their position. He exalts them. Um, and so in this psalm, I think we actually see three ways um, which this is, this is happening, in which weak people are taken in their, just their frailty and all that, 
and given glory. And so the first is that weak things are given victory. And in verse 2, right, a bunch of babies, I think I've got a slide, yep. A bunch of babies are the champions of God's army. That's pretty cool. And then next, weak things are given glory. In verse 5, they're made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honour. And the glory, you see, which is mentioned in verse 1, is set, which is set above the heavens, is then also set on them weak things. And this harkens back to Genesis 1, verses 26, and also Genesis 2, verses 7, where frail humanity is um, taken from the dust and shaped into God's image, reflecting his glory, right, in a way that the rest of creation just doesn't. And then finally, weak things are given purpose. And so in verses 6 to 8, we see that God has given us the responsibility to be his representatives in the world. And these verses also harken back um, to Genesis 1, where God not only creates humanity in his image, but then he also gives them something to do. He gives them a mandate to have dominion over the earth. And that doesn't mean treat the earth badly, but to care for it, to tend for the creation. And so all of this is to say that God exalts weak human beings far above their, their station. Now, just as humanity was seen as nothing special in the ancient world, as our Western society turns its back on its Christian heritage, voices are being raised that once again question this assumption that there's something special about humans. For example, there's an Australian philosopher called Peter Singer, and he's also quite a famous public intellectual, like one of, the, one of those kind of dark web intellectual like, and he denies, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He denies that all human life is equally valuable. And, in, and, and instead, he argues that quality, qualities like self-awareness um, and creativity and rationality are what's necessary for, you know, this bag of bones and everything to actually be considered a human being to be considered a person. But of course, this leads him to some really, what I think, are dangerous places. And he has to exclude right, all kinds of people, like the frail elderly, people with dementia, those who suffer really crippling disabilities, you know, real bad cognitive disabilities, the unborn, even babies. He has to exclude them from humanity as lives that are worth living, as worthwhile lives. And in a series of distressing statements, he says things like, human babies, and this is the born kind that he's referring to, are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. And so killing them, therefore, cannot be equated with killing normal human beings. Further, he actually argues that, he says, it does not seem wise, right, to add to the burden on limited resources 
by increasing the number of severely disabled children. And if you think these, these are fringe ideas, they're not, right? Increasingly, they have huge currency in, the, like, in, in academics at universities. And I don't know if you know, but Iceland um, has essentially eradicated babies born, born with um, Down syndrome. Um, yeah. But, you know, the message of Psalm 8 rails, rails against these kind of ideas. And in a culture that increasingly values people just because of their utility, the idea that humanity, even in its weakest, frailest form, has been exalted by God is so important. So important. Now, we can fall into this issue of undervaluing human beings. But it's also really important to note, right, that the weak aren't given this exalted place because of anything that they do. And so there's no place for pride and for the kind of pride that the poet Invictus displays when he defiantly exclaims, I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. When we announce our independence from God, in this way, and when we set ourselves up as these individuals that, um, that answer to no one, I think the history of the 21st century reveals that we also remove just the limits on our cruelty. There's no longer any restraint on our actions towards those who are, them, who are weaker than us. Um, and instead, all that matters is power the will to power, might is right. But Psalm 8 also addresses this pitfall by showing us that our dignity is something that's granted, it's something that's given to us. It doesn't hinge right on any characteristic that we possess or anything that we've achieved. Instead, the psalm says that the weak are crowned with significance. It's something that's given. Um, and so I hope you see sort of what I've tried to say here, that when we get to get rid of God, it leads us to like either of these two dangerous extremes. We either underemphasize humanity's importance or we, we elevate ourselves too high. But in contrast, Psalm 8 reminds us that authentic human existence involves striking a balance between those two extremes. We must recognize, yes, that we're really important, um, and that the people around us are so important, but we also have got to remain aware um, that we've been risen to the, from the dust, and that's been in spite of anything that we've done. And now, that's all a little bit th- philosophical, but it also has some really, really, really practical implications for us today. It means that all people, right, all people, can be used for God's glory. Whether or not we are used by him doesn't depend on anything in us at all. There's no threshold for being used by God. So in Psalm 8, it's babies that God uses to defeat his foes. And I don't know about you, if you know, 
sorry, but babies are pretty weak. They're vulnerable. They don't have any wisdom or any knowledge. And they're completely dependent upon other people for survival. And yet he uses them as his commanders-in-chief. And in fact, I reckon it's really interesting. This psalm's doing something really interesting in that he doesn't say, right, that he uses their strengths, baby's strengths, so like their cuteness or their chubbiness or that kind of thing, right, to silence foes. That could, you could sort of say, yeah, that's possible. Instead, Psalm 8 shows us that he uses their weaknesses. What does he use? He uses their mouths. And typically... All that comes out of the mouth of a baby is crying or babbling. There's no eloquence there. There's not really any good arguments and there isn't any cleverness. But it's these cries that God uses to silence his foes. So I think the point is that God, he doesn't just use the weakest humans, but he uses the weakest humans at their weakest And so God doesn't have any need for like big, powerful eloquence or even, even coherent language because the tongues of infants are ready right, to celebrate God's glory. Now, recently, I've been trying to find an internship and a job, that kind of thing. And when you apply for a job, um, you've really got to sell yourself as like the next Elon Musk kind of thing. But in writing my resume, I've realized some things about myself, and this is a bit of a self-pity sesh. So, <laughs> I didn't attend an elite university. I went to UniSA, which people have dubbed super TAFE, but I quite enjoyed UniSA. <laughs> I'm not a founder or an innovator or, the, or a CEO of any company. I don't, I'm not the trustee of anything more than my own belongings. And even then, my mum is involved in that. <laughs> um, and I haven't received any honorary doctorates. I haven't been named Time Magazine's most influential person. And I certainly haven't been named Men's Health Magazine's most attractive. <laughs> and to top it all off, there's no streets named after me or buildings or whatever. But that's okay. You know, really, it's totally fine. Why? Because Psalm 8 reveals that God is just not impressed with our, with our resumes and our attempts to prove our worthiness. You see, our accomplishments don't justify our existence. Our accolades don't merit us any greatness. And the usefulness of our life isn't dependent on our resume or how much we know. And so if your resume is sparse, you aren't a genius, your skills aren't that impressive, and your wisdom is just above average, <laughs> don't worry because God can use even you um, to bring him majesty in all the earth. And this also means something else that we maybe often overlook that's actually really important. It means that we can't actually dismiss those who in our eyes seem weak. And even more than that, right? It's not enough just to like tolerate them or to treat them well or to pity them or to serve them. Actually, those who seem weak are equipped to display God's majesty 
right, in ways that those who we think of as being strong and powerful and proud can't. And so they are indispensable to the work of the church. We need children, people living with disabilities, and older people. They don't just need us. Um, yeah, actually, I'll tell this story. I was tossing up whether I'd tell this, um, but I've just been on a camp called SCKC, and it's cool to see that there's a few people there here from that camp. I had a strange night on Thursday night. Um, Declan knows about this. He was there, and I think Nathan was there too, yeah. We, the kids, it's a kid camp for foster children or children from, like, trauma backgrounds. And um, so it can be a bit hectic. You know, so, you know, the only way that a lot of these kids know how to deal with things is f- through what they've been shown, violence, that kind of thing. And it had been a pretty peaceful camp up until this point. But Thursday night, the kids get pretty razzed up because they're leaving the next day and they don't really want to leave. Um, and so we don't really know how it happened, but us three, we're in a dorm and this huge little brawl breaks out between three of the kids. And we can't calm it down. We can't do any. We're, we're trying all the tricks in the book. They say, like, oh, you know, acknowledge their behaviour and what they're feeling, which is good. But, you know, that just gets them more riled up and whatever in this situation. <laughs> we get one of the kids out. He calms down. But there's these two that are left in there who just aren't calming down. And we're like, it's getting late. We want to go to bed. There was this other kid on camp. And his name, I won't say. I was about to, but I won't say it. <laughs> he, the previous year, had possibly had the worst year we've ever seen for a camper. Like, you, you'd almost think that he was, like, possessed. Like, it was just crazy. He was lashing out at everybody for the minutest little things. And so we had to send him home, which was really sad. And we didn't really know what would happen with him. But he was back this year, which was really cool. And he was having quite a good camp. Obviously, he still had a few difficulties, but it was good for him. And um, he, the door, the door of this cabin, right, swings open. And he's there. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen now? He's going to rile things up. Um, he's going to get riled up. He comes in with this little lizard. And he says, <laughs> which he's caught. And he, and he calms all the boys down with it. And then he's counselling them. He's, he's trying to figure out why they're angry and trying to talk them through it. There's a pretty amazing thing to witness. You see, God uses all people for his majesty. So, finally, God himself becomes weak. And that's how, another way, he displays his majesty. And so, so far, right, we've seen that God makes his name majestic through weak things. In particular... He cares for them so much that he actually comes and visits them. He exalts them by making them victorious and giving them glory and giving them purpose. And that's all really pretty great. But there's a problem. It doesn't, this doesn't seem to fit, right, you know, with our experience of the world. And Hebrews 2, I've got it up there so you can have a read raises the same issues. 
it, it actually quotes um, verses 4 to 6 of this psalm. And then it pretty clearly highlights, and I quote, that we do not yet see everything in, subject, in subjection to him. That I think it's referring to humanity there. But Hebrews 2, show, you know, it shows us, right, that something has gone horribly wrong. That we live in a world that's been ravished and destroyed by human beings that have rejected God's gracious care and that have abused the exalted place that they were given. And so as a result, right, we see a world where Psalm 8 just remains unfulfilled. Enemies continue to rise up against the weak who are still regularly oppressed and downtrodden. We've failed, each one of us, to live up to the image of God and instead we scorn it in ourselves and in other people. And finally, it seems like that, that divine call right, to have dominion over the earth has, is just tragically unfulfilled. There's, the whole earth is ravaged by things like sickness, disease and death and we abuse that power that we've been given, destroying creation. You see, Psalm 8 leaves us in this pretty um, tricky place. However, I don't think Psalm 8 was written to describe like our current situation. Instead, I think it longs for a final fulfilment of all these things. It highlights right that we need a greater exaltation um, to display God's majesty in weakness and that this is achieved by an ultimate visit. And so Psalm 8, it points us forward. And that's exactly... Um, how the author of Hebrews right, goes on to actually interpret this psalm. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, he goes on to read Psalm 8 in light of the story of Jesus. And in doing so, right, he claims that Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfills this psalm. As the author says in verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see Jesus. And what do we see in Jesus? Well, firstly, that he brings that ultimate exaltation that we've been waiting for. It says in Hebrews 2 that he is crowned with glory and honour. You see, the, as we've seen, the human race has failed to live up to, its, to the position that's been given. But what you and I can't fulfil... In Psalm 8, Jesus steps in and perfectly fulfills on our behalf. In particular, he achieves the ultimate victory, right? That puts an end to all violence. And he doesn't just do that by waging some big massive war and wiping out all the bad guys. Rather, he achieves that by destroying enmity itself. And then he achieves ultimate glory. You know, we have failed to live up to the image of God. But Hebrews 1.3 describes Jesus, right, as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then finally, he achieves ultimate dominion over the world. As Ephesians 1.21-23 21, 
20 to 21 states, sorry. Jesus has been raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. He is the true king, and he brings a new kingdom characterized by peace, and he'll reign forever. Now, what makes this even more amazing is that all this is achieved by the ultimate visit. And this is where I want to finish. So um, be comforted by that. (laughs) God demonstrates his care and his mindfulness towards us, weak people, quite literally by visiting us in Jesus. He tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. He entered into our brokenness and the pain of this creation. But this visit, right, it was nothing like the Beatles' visit in Adelaide. There weren't any crowds. There wasn't a big red carpet rolled out. And there definitely weren't any press conferences. Um, Isaiah 53 says that there wasn't any beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Instead, he comes. He came as a weak man who had no place to lay his head, who wasn't even welcomed in his own own hometown, who was dependent on others for financial support and who suffered outside the city gates. And then... You know, this, I guess, weakness is seen in its full extent on the cross. Jesus descended, right, as far, as far from the throne of God as he could. As a condemned criminal on the accursed cross, he went all the way down to undergo what Hebrews 2.9 calls the suffering of death. And so... This psalm points us forward to how God most ultimately displays his majesty through all the earth in weak things. God became weak through Christ. And he did this so that, as Hebrews 2.9 says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And today, as we're struck by just the amazing truth, right, that the highest has bowed to the lowest and lifted us up to a place that we just don't deserve. There's nothing left for us to do except fall on our knees in awe. Our tongues should be filled with just rejoicing because we can't wait to burst into praise because God hasn't left us where we were, broken, Instead, he's turned death into life, darkness into light, and the certainty of destruction into the assurance of salvation. And so all we can do is declare along with David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let's just pray to finish. Dear God, we we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus, Lord that you um, 
yeah, that you have visited us, that you lowered yourself to our level, that you went all the way down to the most painful death of all, Lord. And in that, Lord, you have um, been crowned with honour and glory and you invite us in to be a part of that, Lord. God, we just thank you so much. And may your name be majestic in all the earth. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.